Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where we are talking about a new movie set in the 1920s. A group of young men set out to Balsam Lake at Long Point Camp, and it is a harrowing story that emerges where these young men are encountering a freak summer storm when they are capsized in the middle of the lake. And uh, the movie tells their story of a soul-shuddering fight for survival. A really powerful, really well-put-together film. And I am very excited to welcome the writer and director of the film, Richard Bell, joining us from Vancouver. Richard, welcome to the show. Sean, thank you so much. It's a, it's a true honor. Thank you. I appreciate that, and very excited to talk about the film, which I watched last night. It is a historical piece that is not a documentary, but based on, on real events. So one of the things that's interesting about this is it's this is an event. It happens at Balsam Lake, which is in Ontario. It's part of the Kawartha Lakes. If Correct. I have yeah. my geography right. Yeah. So uh, sort of near Bob Cage in that area, if anybody knows, uh, sort, sort of southern Ontario, very cottagey right now. Um, now it's cottagey, but then it was, you know, the wild wilderness. Right, right. So so you're out there in Vancouver. And mm-hmm. One of the things that, that uh, this is a story I'd never heard of. Uh, there's a, a story in the the star that covered this at the time and there was some some press about it but as a historian who has some familiarity with this era uh, it's not something that that had come across my uh, radar at all so i'm curious first how did you learn about this story and what spoke to you about it that you immediately thought this is a movie Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a bit of an irony that it took a Vancouverite and a West Coast guy to um, unearth and expand on this Ontarian story. And and you're not alone in in not knowing the true story of the Brotherhood of St. Andrew. In fact, like when we did a screening uh, in Balsam Lake for the community uh, in July for the 93rd anniversary of the tragedy, there was a lady who came up to me who said, I have a cottage on Balsam Lake and I have lived here for 40 years and I did not know that this story happened. So, um, you know, I was living in Toronto uh, in 2006. Uh, I've I consider Toronto to be sort of like a second home. I've been back and forth uh, living off and on in Toronto, like since the nineties. And uh, I was in a restaurant and I saw a tiny little story uh, in a newspaper about a mass that was at uh, St. Thomas church in Kirkfield. That was an 80th anniversary mass of remembrance for the brotherhood of St. Andrew who had died in 1926. And it was a tiny story. And I, I read what happened about these boys setting up off across the lake in, in a 30 foot war canoe and the story about them, you know, all clinging onto the canoe after being upset after the summer storm. And I was blown away by it. And I thought, wow, like that has so many elements to make such a great movie. Um, it's a ticking time clock, right? It's a survival story. It's an adventure story and it's a transformative story. As a writer, you always want to have, you know, movies about, 
uh, creates stories about ca- uh, characters going on a meaningful arc. And this was a transformative story in the capacity that it was about boys becoming men within the course of one evening. Uh, foolishly, at that moment, I thought to myself and I said to myself, wow, this would be a great movie because it all takes place in one location. So it'd be really cheap to film and which is entirely untrue. Like any time you're working with minors, uh, teenagers and you're shooting a real lake and you're chasing weather, it's millions of dollars. Um, but at that time, I thought, oh, you know, it's it's a contained story. I, I, I can do this quite easily. Um, to be honest with you, I, I sort of forgot about the story and I filed it away in my brain. I was trying to get another project, actually kind of another historical true story off the ground. And um, that faltered and foundered and then it didn't didn't happen. It didn't go to camera. So it was around 2010 or 2011 that, you know, that's like the, that I picked up the story again. But I had forgotten the name of the lake. And all I remembered was that it was a war canoe and it was boys drowning and uh you know boys trying to survive and clinging to a canoe um and at that time there wasn't a lot about the brotherhood of saint andrew on google um so i i did a you know a bit of treasure hunting and then as soon as i found the lake i was able to uh to 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 find the stories and go to my public library here i hired a researcher uh, and also now what's really great, you know, for any history buff is that all the, the newspaper articles of old, uh, they're all scanned, they're all on microfiche. And what kind of struck me about the Brotherhood of St. Andrew's story was that at the time in 1926, it was in newspapers across the world like it was in you know the Sydney Herald or it was in England or in the States. Um, this story about, you know, this band of brothers in on a Canadian lake. Uh, so at that time I, I was able to using like probably about maybe about 25 or 30 newspaper articles was able to lay down the skeleton of the story and, and figure out, you know, what happened and the order of events. So yeah, the, there's the big, uh, Toronto daily star, the whole front page on July 23rd, 1926 is devoted to, this balsam lake story and mm-hmm. what happens here uh, so you're doing this this research uh, obviously as someone uh, who as a background as a professional historian i'm very curious to know not only about the process of doing the research but between what you found and the final product as to what is on the film like what people are going to see when they go watch this movie how true to life is the story like how, like you know, one of the criticisms that often gets leveled against these based on true story events is the artistic license. And, you know, I, I certainly am conscious of the fact that in any story, there's going to be some artistic license taken because that's just the way it is and sort of the way it has to be. But in, in putting this story together, how how closely did you follow the, the real stories of these individuals, particularly when it discusses their personal lives and the dynamics between some of the characters. Right. So in regards to the whole artistic license thing, I mean, I have a very good screenwriting mentor who's made a career for himself in Los Angeles. And he said to me quite sagely, never let the truth get in the way of telling a good story. Now I'm sure that that's going to be disappointing to hear 
to some of your listeners. However, that being said, a movie is a movie is a movie. And you, you know, there, there is a structure to a movie. Um, the, and there is a way to tell a story and, like a movie is not a historical document and a movie, a feature film is not a documentary. Uh, and I think that um, these days I, I find that people are quite savage about, Oh, that didn't really happen or that's not true. I think that a movie ought to be a springboard and a gateway to a person doing their, his or her, her own research into the world. So like when I, like when I watched, you know, the Tudors with Jonathan Rhys Myers. It's like, I didn't take that as gospel. I thought that that was an, an entertaining, you know, soapy TV show about King Henry VIII. I right afterwards, I went to Wikipedia or whatnot. And I did my own research and I found out what really happened. I think the movie is the conduit to the true, 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 true story. That being said, um, you know, uh, years later, uh, cause, you know, I, it took me a couple of years to write the movie. When I went back and I looked at some of the articles and I looked at the microfiche, I was actually quite surprised by how closely I followed the real story. And also there are a lot of details about the boys and even some of the conversations that I have taken directly from the true story. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of a little tricky to talk about because, you know, it's also involves, you know, quite a few spoilers. Um, sure. Yeah. But that being said, yeah, I mean, there's a character who says that he worked at the Wrigley chewing gum factory. That is true. There's a character who says that his father drowned. Um, that is true. You know, uh, it may not be the exact character who says it in the movie. However, that is true. Um, there's, different little details about the camp or things that happened or something set that was said, you know, for me as a writer and a researcher, I really think of myself as a treasure hunter. And when I found, you know, little pockets of diamonds, you know, truth, I would take them and I would use them and maybe things got moved around, but I'm really concerned, you know, on a larger scale about how kind of angry and in, tolerant the Twitter mob is about uh, movies that I think are pretty well-intentioned that are trying to, you know, open up the world of a true story. And they're just, they just get told off. Like, um, you know, I, I, it's a very controversial topic, but I, I, I very much enjoyed Green Book and I, I felt quite sorry for the, for the filmmakers who made that movie for, you know, all the resistance and the anger and the vitriol that they had to be on, you know, the receiving end for, um, even like when Roland Emmerich made the movie Stonewall, you know, just the confusion and the anger and, um, about, you know, and the kind of like, how dare you ism of like, why would you tell this story? And why didn't you tell it like this? Uh, I just, I don't believe that people should tell, I don't believe that people ought to tell artists how to make their art, uh, especially when I think anybody who's making a movie is doing it with the best of intentions. Well, you certainly hope that that's the case, right? I, you, you, the, the fear, of course, sometimes is if it feels exploitative, which uh, is always dangerous. And, and I mean, I can think of a couple of, of examples where it's felt that way. Uh, none of the ones that you mentioned 
Mm-hmm. So, um, one of the things that, that's interesting, too, one, one of my favorite lines from any movie ever is from The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance at the end of the movie where the, the newspaper man in the town says, when, uh, when, legend, when legend becomes fact, print the legend. <laughs> which I, yeah. I love that line so much and it, it's it speaks to the need that, that people want to be entertained right and when they're coming to a movie even if it is based on a true story i i think that people will come to it with the sense of there is artistic license they know it's not a documentary and the the people who are super critical of the historical accuracy of films, I think it's often the case that it, it, it's, I, I really think for a lot of them, it's well-intentioned as well, that they mm-hmm. have a connection to whatever that story is and a passion for it. And that th- that's sort of what creates this dynamic of like, oh, I just wish that this could have been told in a different way or, and, and there's a difference between like Wonder Woman walking across no man's land in the first world war in that movie mm-hmm. versus like saving private Ryan. Right. And sort of the expectations that people have with those, uh, with those films. And that's why I think accuracy in historical films, it sort of created this cottage industry of people pointing out errors. Of course, you know, accuracy matters and authenticity matters. And I was very, I was very uh, cognizant of telling an authentic story as a writer and then as a director pulling out, you know, all the stops when it came to authenticity uh, with, you know, the actors, the production design or the music or the commitment to the era. Uh, all that being said, I think that as audiences and Twitter mobs get more and more angry with filmmakers, I'm just afraid that it's just going to dissuade people from touching certain things. Um, you know, Apple, uh, Apple Plus just announced that they're, you know, they've, they've pulled the premiere of this Samuel L. Jackson movie, The Banker, because, uh, and, and it's kind of like unknown as to why, but I have a feeling that there's probably like a similar situation that happened with Green Book, uh, with people coming up out uh, of the woodwork with pitchforks about questioning the accuracy or the intentions of the movie. I don't know. I'm just guessing. However, like, however, I'm just concerned that it, you know, but I mean, this is a tale as old as time. Like there's people who, you know, the people who read the book, who go see the movie and they say, Oh, the book was better. Well, you know, that's like comparing, uh, a painting to a sculpture. They are just completely different things. And I just don't believe that there's filmmakers out there who are going to spend three years of their lives and a huge amount of money to do something that's a disservice to the source material. For me, I probably would not touch a historical story that is known just for that reason. And okay. for me, um, doing the story of the Brotherhood of St. Andrew was exciting because because I because I said to myself, this is buried treasure. No one knew about it. Um, so uh, so but if it were like a, if it were a story that everyone knew, I probably wouldn't touch it just for that reason that I, I just I wouldn't be able to deal with the uh, kind of like the peanut gallery. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Uh... So w- within that context, though, because it's a story that, as you say, a, a lot of people didn't know about myself included, there, there's also then a lot of 
holes, I would assume, in some of the research, that there's just gaps that, that can't be filled. Uh, and certainly in telling the story, certain devices that you need to have that there, there might not be a, a clear answer for, uh, like, you know, certainly the interpersonal dynamics of a group, right? That mm -hmm. would be extraordinarily hard, even if you have all the people still alive and can interview them. It's really hard to get a sense of what the, those dynamics were. Uh, the, the conversations that take place, particularly at pivotal moments in this movie, the, the wording, of course, or even the sentiment that is expressed, that's hard to recreate. So, so what was your strategy in writing the film? Was it the, the way I watched it and the way I, I thought of it was that you're taking these people who were real people and taking whatever information you had about them and creating characters based on that. And the sense I got was that this is the, the people who you meet in the film are as closely representative of the information that you had as you could have gotten because they do feel like real people. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, the, the only people who I really had information about, um, would be Robert Shea Butcher, who's the camp leader. Um, you know, these things that I, that are in the movie are true. He did, you know, serve under General Curry. He did carry the Allied colors into Mon. Um, he was, you know, uh, a, you know, uh, a devout leader of this Anglican camp. He did believe, in the kind of old timey ways of like the ideas of, uh, of mentorship and knights and squires, boys going through, um, you know, trials and tribulations. Um, uh, so, so that's, so that's, that's true. I, I would say that the three male characters are really informed by my research and my appreciation of the great war. Um, and that their characters like the, the Great War is in the very DNA of this movie. And I was less interested in what happened in the future of these characters or, you know, interviewing their descendants than I was um, in looking at the decade before the movie takes place, uh, you know, and specifically the years 1914 to 1918. So uh, all the conversations that the characters have amongst each other, um, like there's that scene in the tent where the three leaders are talking together. They're having a private moment away from the boys and, you know, in a way letting their guard down. It's like, well, what did the men who never talk about the war talk about amongst themselves um, in private moments? Right. Uh, so there was that, um, you know, the, the story and the tragedy of the Brotherhood of St. Andrew and, you know, the series of events and them, you know, going out on the lake and when the storm happened and all that kind of stuff, that's what happens. But as a filmmaker, as a screenwriter, as a storyteller, it's all about theme. And you look at it and you say, what is this movie about? And what is the theme? The theme is the glue, the cinematic glue that holds the whole story together. So for me, the theme was, you know, about boyhood, about manhood and how to make it relevant to an audience today. For me, it was really about exploring uh, and delving into the boy crisis, the modern day boy crisis that we're living in now that, you know, you could say maybe kind of starts in the late 1990s with um, the Columbine shooters uh, all the way up to where we are now with incel culture. 
Um, you know, boys are, uh, there's many, you know, scientific papers and books about, you know, the current boy crisis and how, you know, boys are lost these days. They're, um, you know, listless and alone, angry, apathetic, um, don't feel like they belong and not doing well in schools. And there's a lot of focus on, uh, girls getting ahead and, 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 uh, female empowerment, which is great, which is good, which is high time. And uh, boys are suffering right now. Um, so a similar state of concern existed in the 1920s uh, and the 1910s uh, about boyhood. Um, you know, this was the first generation. You know, th these are boys who were left fatherless by the First World War um, or their fathers came home and they were the shell of the men that they once were. Um it was a generation of, of, of boys who were raised by their mothers. Um, it was the first time there were uh, females and uh, teachers, you know, in, in schools. Um, so, you know, people were concerned about the state of boyhood in the 1910s and 1920s, I think, as people are now. Uh, so I read a couple books. Um, there's a great book called Real Boys, which is about uh, the boy crisis. Um, also, Last Child in the Woods, which is about nature deficit disorder, um, which is, you know, um, kind of like a, a rallying call for children in general, just to return to nature. Uh, and also the book Iron John, which is um, a book, a story about uh, uh, boyhood and manhood as told through myth. So all that, uh, it was kind of like a combination of those three books that uh, that gave me the theme for the movie. And within that theme, uh, that's how I created the, to get back to your earlier question, that's how I created the conversations that the boys had. I also wanted to, as an exploration of boyhood and manhood, I also wanted to have create, uh, male archetypes. So you will see guys like, you know, Waller, who's like the rebel, who in my mind was kind of like, you know, like the river Phoenix kind of character, the rebel without a cause, you know, there's the nerdy character like Leonard, um, or the awkward character like Gordon, there's the kid brother, there's the older brother, you know, there's the jock, you know, so, um, so I wanted uh, boyhood and manhood and its many comp and complicated and varied forms to be represented in the film. And that's where the conversations and that's where the dialogue came from. So in talking about the, the, the role of masculinity in, in the story, I, I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people have the idea of, masculinity in a very a singular form of what masculinity was and maybe even is and like you said that there's the three or three of these characters at the very least represent different forms of what masculinity is and i, I think it's interesting to contrast it to contemporary culture and the idea of young men today trying to find their way and, and a lot of times or maybe not a lot of times but in certain cases you have as you reference men uh, young men retreating uh from society H how do we approach this and make it so that you know you can be a, a man and and be masculine in whatever form fits you like like you know masculinity isn't one thing mm -hmm. it's, it can be a variety of things and I, I think you're right. There's a struggle there 
for young men to feel comfortable with whatever expression of masculinity is best for them. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, uh, I think it's a really hard time to be a boy right now. And I think it's a really hard time to be a man. And, uh, you know, we, I consider myself a lefty and a liberal, but wow, like I, 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 I guess I, I'm not in the sense that I, I think that the alt left is kind of like just as frightening as the alt right in the sense of like speech policing and thought policing and scolding. And I don't think anybody really I think guys today are just withdrawing because I think they don't know how to be. Um, and the. The ascension of females in our society is long overdue and really important. And, you know, it's a fantastic thing. And there should be room for everyone. There ought to be room for everyone. And that doesn't like like I don't know, like what does a 10 year old boy think when he's told that the future is female? I, I'm not too sure what that means. Like um, and I think that, you know, because like say there's like a Donald Trump in in office as president of the United States. And he's kind of like a perfect example of toxic masculinity, right? Like we don't like, I think we that. don't want that. No, right. But I think that duly people are really kind of, I don't know, like everyone's afraid of raising a Donald Trump or something and, and, and duly like scolding boys. And, and I, I don't know, like, you know, I, I I heard a story about this, you know, boy who got expelled from school for like, you know, making the, the gun symbol with his hand and, you know, going pew, pew, pew and, you know, doing a Star Wars thing. Right. Like like uh, it's just like I, I don't know, like if I were a mother, I wouldn't know really or a father. I, I wouldn't really know how to raise boys today. Yeah, I, I mean, the best I think we can do is try to teach our our young men that you know you know be respectful right be polite uh yep you know be engaged and and you know basically everything you see the president do do the opposite of that uh basically yeah um right and and but but you're you're right i i think the, the one of the problems is that for a hundred years in film masculinity has been presented in one way and that leans toward that toxic masculinity even more like i saw it's silly i know but the the youtube channel cinema sins they did one about the movie hitch which is maybe 10 years old so uh, the will smith movie the, the will smith movie yeah. yeah and the amount of stereotypes that are in that movie of men are like this women are like this and if if you're as i was a young man who's been exposed to pop culture that is telling you this is what masculinity is and this is what women are in in position to that masculinity and you know we're realizing that wait that's not real it, it can be hard to navigate for sure and so i think uh stuff like this that demonstrates different ways in which young men can interact, can uh, be comfortable within their own skin, the, the more sort of outlets like this film that exist, the better it is because it gives 
young men of different uh, personalities and different interests, an ability to find themselves represented in pop culture? There's many, many, many different versions and interpretations of masculinity. And for me, like as a gay guy and growing up as a gay kid in a small town in a Catholic you know, household, like for me, I just rebel against anybody's sort of like, you know, version or description or rules about masculinity or any kind of like this heteronormative, this is how it should be, you know, this is how it shouldn't be, all that being that all that being said like i i have straight brothers right and my straight brothers are like the nicest sweetest coolest most kind of well like you know just well adjusted and well intentioned people and i'm a little worried that right now there's kind of like there feels to be a, like a little bit of a war against straight white guys and I also just feel like as we empower other people, I don't think that we ought to be disempowering straight white guys. I, I, I really don't like I think that's problematic. I, I don't believe that we that things are as simple as as finding villains and heroes um, uh, and that straight white guys are bad. Um, or that, you know, it's, they should shut up for a while. I, I think that we all need to talk. I think we all need a seat at the table to have meaningful conversation. And I don't believe in black and white. And I, I, I believe in nuance and I believe in all the soupy gray areas of, 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 of dealing with issues and, and dealing with, um, identity roles and and dealing with our sexuality and talking about things in a meaningful way i don't think that this is right and this is wrong and just because the person who's yelling the loudest uh, doesn't mean that they're the they're right but i do want to talk about the uh, first world war in relation to to the film because the war is one of these things too that often gets presented in a very similar black and white way of a very simplistic narrative that gets presented especially the idea that we hear all the time of these guys went they died for us and what you often see when you read some of the letters is that no they didn't really die for us especially in 2019 they didn't they didn't know me uh you know they, they had mm -hmm. their own uh, motivations and everyone had their own reasons for going to war some of them were altruistic sure and they were, were fighting for the nation but others had you know, economic reasons that they mm -hmm. uh, wanted to go. And it's interesting that this film is really dealing with the aftermath of those decisions and how they affected the people who, some who were left behind, others who went and came home and left others over in Europe. Uh, so how much of the story of the First World War and its legacy uh, what when you initially heard of this story did you uh, immediately think of this connection or right where did this where, where did this uh where did this sort of light bulb moment uh, come from in the research 
Actually, the light bulb moment was I was having dinner with uh, Bram Altovi, who was uh, for many years the music director of the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. And he did this score for my previous film, 18. And we were having dinner and I was telling him the story about the Brotherhood of St. Andrew on Balsam Lake. And he was like, oh, what year did it take place in? And I said 1926. And the light bulb moment, honestly, was when Bramwell said, oh, like, were any of the camp counselors veterans of the First World War? And I went, wow, yes, of course, they must have been. And um, so that was my light bulb moment, you know, and as I delved into the research for the film of uh, sure enough, all three of the camp counselors were, were veterans. And, and then that kind of like, I just went from there. It just, you know, the great war like hangs like a big cloud over this story and over these characters. Yeah. And it's sort of this constant presence to, uh, in the research, did you find that the, the counselors or, or the, the boys themselves, was it, because, you know, it's eight years later, and obviously, especially for the veterans themselves, it never goes away. It's always no. it's always part of their consciousness. But was it, for, for these guys, did you find examples of them discussing it, of, of it being at the forefront on a daily basis in their lives? Um, you mean in, like, the research or the newspaper articles? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, the the newspaper articles were all about the actual event, like the the, um, you know, like describing what happened, who went first, who went second, who died, who drowned. Um, the uh, this the material about the First World War was maybe um, like I had gotten that from, like, say, about like Robert Butcher, like, you know, his history and and um, like newspaper articles describing him and uh, what led him to lead, you know, a boys camp. Um, that's where I found the information about the First World War. OK. And in in talking about the I, I don't know if it's uh, a spoiler or not, if it is, I'll cut it. But if um, mm-hmm. You know the 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 story of uh, of of two of the the young men, the the story of their father. Actually, let's just say the story of their father. Yeah. Um, like, was that something that uh, you encountered, or uh, as part of the the real story of of these two men, or or was that a a choice that was artistic to tie in the experience to a broader national narrative? Uh, the latter. That was an artistic okay. choice. Okay. And, and why why did you feel that was important to to include that particular story? I felt like it was important because of the uh, because of the circumstances surrounding those characters' father's death. I thought was another take, like how he died. Yeah. Um, I I found that that was another take on uh, the theme of war and masculinity. And courage um, and, uh, you know, like, um, you know, I, I, I watched the movie recently at a festival and and there's a line of dialogue that stood out where uh, the older brother says to the younger brother, you know, our dad was a shopkeeper who volunteered. I think he was really brave. And um, f- for me, that's what that's about. You know, like it's just like. Uh, maybe you didn't have to necessarily do something particularly heroic in the war. It was about showing up. It was about being there. 
And also, like, you know, conscription didn't come in right away in Canada. So when you think about the fact that people actually raised their hands and got in a lineup and signed up for that, I, I, I think that that's, you know, quite a phenomenal thought. Yeah, and, and as you see in the, in the film, it can change people's perception of what happened to uh, sort of the, the timeline and, and the idea of volunteering to do this. Uh, it, it does influence how we think of then and now uh, what these guys did when they went over. Yeah, and it's also like a whole exploration into what is a hero and what makes a hero. Uh, and, there, you know, there's a line where Robert says a hero is just a man who's too scared to run away. Um, and, you know, this is from a person who, you know, won medals in the, in the war. You know, it's, it's funny because when you hear... It's not funny. It's like it's interesting because when you hear veterans talk about the war, um, you know, you hear them say, I'm not the hero. Like the guys who died were the hero or I'm not a hero. I just dodged a bullet or I just didn't get hit. Um, It's very it's fascinating to hear how they describe it. Yeah, and each of them has their own different perceptions of it. One of my favorite things is when I was over in in france there's it's called maison blanche it's run by a private not-for-profit group but it was it, it's near vimy ridge and it's a souterrain where a lot of the canadian soldiers were living in the days and weeks leading up to the uh, the battle on uh, for vimy ridge on april the 9th in 1917 and uh, underneath, it's the, there's all these carvings on the wall because these guys were just bored out of their minds. Right. They were waiting. So they would carve into the wall. And one of the things <coughs> they found when they were going through the Sioux train was a bullet with a name on it. Wow. And they they found in the letters um, this this idea that each, for a lot of soldiers, they would take a bullet, write their own name on it, and put it in their pocket and with the the idea being that each soldier has one bullet with their name on it. Right. Wow. If I have it, then I'll be okay. Right. Right. Uh, wow. Sort of beautiful thing. But but again, this awareness of what they were doing and sort of wow. just having that over them the whole time, it, it really sort of puts into perspective the magnitude of the event. Yeah, well, that's. Well, that's a great scene in a movie right there. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, so so I do want to talk a little bit about sort of the f- the filmography of it if that's a word. Um because you you mentioned that this is made on location. Uh it's it's made with a, a bunch of young men, so so kids who there are rules about how long they can film and all that kind of stuff. But I'm curious as to first where the location was. Was this made on Balsam Lake? No, Balsam Lake is far too modern now. Like Balsam Lake is surrounded by cottages. Um, so uh, and Balsam Lake at the time was, you know, the middle of nowhere. So we spent a lot of time searching for the right location. Um, it had to feel right poetically and filmically. Like and I was less interested in getting the exact vibe of Balsam Lake. And I actually wanted the lake in the background to look a little bit bigger uh, I wanted it to feel like these boys were camping 
they were teetering on the edge of forever. So I wanted it to be a, a big lake and I wanted it to feel very much like they were in the middle of nowhere. So we searched all uh, through Ontario and um, I was quite interested in, uh, we looked at Manitoulin Island twice, Manitoulin twice. Yeah. Because um, it, it was quite fascinating. I love the carved rock. Um, it looked very primordial. And I thought that that kind of worked with, you know, my feelings about theme and myth. Um, so, but we ended up going further quite north and we ended up uh, on the Mishapakotan First Nation, which is near Wawa. And that's where we shot. Um, it was the perfect location. Um, just, it was just absolutely stunning. Like it was so gorgeous. It was completely untouched. You could shoot in almost like a 360 degree direction, which was important for us. Um, also there was just the infrastructure was there. Uh, you know, there was a carpentry shop on the res. There was a nurse's office. There was a gathering place. Um, there were, uh, we could do things on a reservation that we couldn't do in a provincial park. Um, there was really no red tape on the first nation because it was their sovereign land. Um, and they also, you know, welcomed us with open arms um, and people uh, from the reservation worked on the film. Like they worked in locations, they worked on props, um, their minister, not their minister, sorry, their public works uh, fellow. He was fantastic. Uh, he like the um, the set part of the, the sets were built with trees that were felled on the First Nation and that, you know, were put through the miller on the First Nation. So. There was just it was kind of like a, a a fantastic package deal in the sense that it was the location that I was looking for that was very mythic and colossal looking, but also had the infrastructure built in. And we also it just felt good, like the movie, you know, like Robert Butcher, he talks about it. He says, you know, this is old Ojibwe land and and the the Mishapakotan First Nation is Ojibwe land. Um the chief, Pat Tanji, was fantastic, was very supportive. The first day of filming, the morning, we all gathered, cast and crew, and uh, she led us in a smudge and, you know, for the intentions of the movie. And it was very meaningful. Like it just and I feel like that kind of meaning and that kind of sparkle, um, I think it comes across in the movie as well. So so it was for me, it was like the perfect location. And it certainly looks great uh, on film, too. Uh, I'm wondering, too, one of the other challenges I'm assuming that exists is that there's a lot of nighttime uh, scenes in the in the film, a lot of uh, scenes that are, are taking place after dark. Uh, I'm just curious about what the, the schedule was like and how were you able to manage to get everything in that you needed to get in, especially that far north, the, the shooting season. I would imagine was somewhat limited. Right. I mean, it was a real roll of the dice, like shooting on location in um, like it was a real roll of the dice. And we were honestly like, I think it's maybe because we did the smudge uh, that the spirits and the heavens were good to us. Uh, wow. Like because we had great weather 
Um, and, uh, you know, there was one day that we were supposed to shoot the boys on the war canoe on the lake. The weather was not cooperating. So we had to change the schedule for that. Um, we did get a storm, but it was the morning that we were shooting a sequence from the first world war. So that fit, um, we did have some inclement weather, but I just kind of moved things around and, and, and shot, uh, act three on that day where I thought that it could be raining instead of being sunny. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It was really, it was really like, we were just blessed with really good weather. As far as the nighttime stuff, like uh, not all the movie was shot on location. Like uh, parts of it were shot in a very large uh, water tank in a sound studio, sorry, uh, in a movie studio. So that was like a more controlled environment um, with green screen and divers and lifeguards. And obviously like there was a lot of safety concerns and, um, you know, safety issues that had to be considered. So it couldn't be, you know, you can't have uh, actors in, you know, real freezing cold lake weather, you know, for a 12 hour, sorry, we 11 hour shoot. Right. Although, I mean, you know, it'd be fun to, Tough it out. Well, right? yeah, yeah it, it's pretty boy actors, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they wanted that. Like, they wanted cold water. Um, and they wanted, like, they're great. Like, they were all really rough and tumble, you know, kind of like athletic guys, which is what we needed and what we were looking for when we were casting, certainly. Um, but that being said, actors say a lot of things, and I think that they'd probably be able to stand it for like an hour. Uh, <laughs> not 11 hours and you know they're also you know protected by their agents and by their unions and three or four of them were under the age of 18 and they're so they were protected by their mothers and that just wouldn't wash right right and uh but yeah it it, it turned out great i said to you uh, before we started recording when i watched it last night within the first two minutes i i said to myself this doesn't look like a canadian movie it it really you know it's i'll just leave it at that right i think we all in our heads know what i mean when i say thing when things look canadian yeah this doesn't you can look usually canadian. sense it like if you're flipping the channels like you can kind of tell right away there's kind of like that you know my my dp adam suica and i we used to kind of joke about kind of like the canadian stink of something which is you know it sounds kind of self-hating and and terrible for me to say that but it's as it's, I mean, what can you say? It's just like, there is a Canadian look to certain things. I, I think when I talk to my cinematographer, he would usually say that uh, Canadian film and television is usually overlit. Um, mm. uh, so there's that. There's sometimes a feel of wooden, kind of like a Canadian wooden acting. Um, maybe it's a little bit theatrical. Uh, it might have more to do with the fact that um, like the Canadian actors are usually trained at theater schools, perhaps, or maybe that sort of kind of like old British kind of, you know, theater stagey. I don't know. Like, you know, even when you think about the early days of CBC, everything was very stagey. Um, maybe that's kind of like ended up in our, in our DNA somewhere that um, for me, I, I, like I, I, my favorite filmmaker, I would say my favorite movie of all time is Lawrence of Arabia, uh, David Lean, like 
you know, that was stuff that was not done on stages. That was, you know, they had cameras melting in the desert. And I just think that, uh, you know, with filmmaking, it's just make it as real as possible make it as authentic as possible. Um, so I, I think that's probably why the movie ended up looking good, but it, it, it's also really a testament to my cinematographer, Adam Suica. You know, he's 25 years older than me. He's like, you know, got a very kind of like older Hollywood maverick Hollywood kind of vibe. Um, and he has a great eye and he started, uh, his career as a, uh, as a lighting guy. So he really understands light. Um, and, you know, I said to him, I go, I want this to look like a mini epic and I want it to look like an old Hollywood movie. And I think that he achieved that look in spades. You know, it's also a testament to, you know, the costume designer with like, you know, the cost with Ginger Martini, like with and the production design and all that kind of stuff. I'm a big fan of detail and I like details within details within details. And I think that there's things that you don't necessarily see in a movie, but they're certainly felt um, I, like I had the actors, uh, their pockets were filled with useful things like playing cards and jacks and, you know, like a little Swiss army knife, marbles, you know, bones, little curios. And every morning on set, they had to pick up their, the stuff that went in their pockets, um, uh, from, from the props department. And so no one had a cell phone in their pocket when they were shooting this movie. And it's like, yeah, you could have a cell phone in your pocket, but for some reason, at the risk of sounding really mystical, I just feel like, I feel like the audience can sense it or something. Yeah, I, I think there's the, you know, it's the Michael Richards theory. Like when Kramer had a was carrying around a, uh, an air conditioner in an episode that's in a box, he said, put an air conditioner in the box. He didn't want to carry yeah. around an empty box. Like there, there's yeah. just, even though you can't see the air conditioner, there's the, the struggle of picking something up. It's like when, when actors are drinking out of cups, Yeah. but, but you can tell there's nothing in the cup, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It's, <laughs> it's just painfully obvious that there's nothing there. Um, it really does anything that takes you out of it for even a quarter of a second. Uh, you well, don't want. The, because those quarter of seconds, um, they add up. Yeah, they totally add up. And for me, like uh, I would uh, I would present we would present an actor with certain props and we would ask them to choose which one they wanted. Like, say, for Arthur, like he spoke the pipe. He was brought two pipes and it's like, choose the pipe that you like. And he chose the pipe that I didn't want for the character. And I was like, oh, that's not the one I want. Oh, OK. And he went with the one that he wanted, you know, or even like there's um, there's some flashback sequences where you see uh, characters when they're younger or you see their relatives. And I would send those pictures to the actors and I would say, choose who you feel is would be your mother or choose who you feel looks like you when you were 10. And I went with their decision because I, I feel like that kind of authenticity is palpable and um it's important. Yeah, and if the actors have that stake in the character, right, again, that comes across in the performance. Absolutely, totally. Like the 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 actor has to be completely invested in in their character, and you know, I made them do a lot of homework, and you know, we had a lot of bonding exercises, and you know, we all went to like a 
you know, uh, not like a cabin, but sort of like a cottage in, in the woods um, in an area called Mono. And uh, we, like the boys, brought uh, ca- um, character bios that they had written, like two-page character bios. And we went on a hike and we sat in a circle and we read each other um, our character bios. And, you know, they built a campfire. Um, I also tasked all the actors with bringing a um, bringing an activity that they can teach to one another. So uh, like, say, Haig McGarry, who plays Gordon, he's kind of like the nerdy kid. He brought he taught the actors how to build a, a rabbit trap, a rabbit snare. Right. And it was so delightful and engaging to watch. And he's kind of like screwing up by accident while he does it. And the actors are kind of like tittering and laughing at him. But that's like the character and that's like the relationship. You know, another actor, you know, did a magic trick. Another actor like taught um, like a lacrosse stick trick with a ball. Uh, Jake Manley actually taught the actors how to build like a proper fire um, and I feel like that stuff just ends up in the soup. Like it really ends up in the movie. And, and for a film called Brotherhood, it's really vital that the, that the, you feel that sense of camaraderie between the boys and that there is that spirit, like that esprit de corps amongst them. Yeah. As you say, the, the, for a film of this type that where it's all about the relationships that, that does need to be there. So again, the film is called Brotherhood. It is, not, it's I don't know we can't call it a premiere because it's already been shown as you said at Balsam Lake but it's it's having a week long run at the Cineplex at Young and Dundas in Toronto the week of December the sixth are, are we calling it a run like what is well it's a theatrical premiere so the okay. the screening on Balsam Lake that happened on July twentieth that was for the community and that was you know a sneak peek. Um, okay. Premieres, like when you say world premiere and all that kind of stuff, that's usually uh, a term that's associated with film festivals. Right. Um, so Cinefest Sudbury had the the world premiere like in September. And uh, then there was um, like a one screening that happened in Halliburton, um, which is actually which felt very fitting because Halliburton is nestled between Algonquin Park and Cobaconk, which is where the boys were headed that night. So we framed that screening for the community as, you know, for one weekend only the boys reached the other side of the lake. Uh, there was also a screening um uh, at Queens Park for invited uh, military and veterans that was done on November 7th uh, in concert with Remembrance Day. And that was hosted by the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, Elizabeth Dowdswell. So that was a bit of a sneak peek as well. This is the first theatrical uh, run. Um, I mean, I'd hope that it'd show for longer than a week, but, uh, you know, it's you know, in the world of Canadian film, you sort of like hope for the best. If people, you know, if a lot of people come in droves that first weekend, hopefully it'll, you know, stay for a second week. Yeah. So everyone in Toronto, in the Toronto area, head downtown uh, the week of December the 6th, see Brotherhood, Young Dundas Square. There's tons of stuff. Uh, you know, you go for dinner before. There's like a million restaurants there. Just you can go see it. It's it's a great film. And it's uh, we, you think it looks like it's going to be showing the week after in Sudbury too. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember the name of the theater, but it was, um, it, 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 the audiences in Sudbury, like were really great. And we had a, at Cinefest, we had a terrible screening time. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. It was a Monday at four o'clock. 
Um, but uh, the interest was so great that it spilled over into two theaters. So like it was in theater 11, but it spilled over into 12 and 10 or something. So um, I- I'm really delighted by that. Yes, I think another reason to see Brotherhood on December 6th is because I know that what the weather is like in Toronto right now. And if you want to warm up a bit and <laughs> see a movie about the halcyon days of summer, I uh, I think that uh, Brotherhood is the way to go. Yeah, it reminds you of life at the lake, uh, you know, walking on the sand, going swimming. You know, just it Absolutely. gives you a sense of, of warmth in, uh, in not a warm time of year. Uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so definitely do check it out. Uh, the, it, theatrical premiere, December 6th. Again, the Cineplex at Young and Dundas. And then for all our friends at Laurentian University in the Sudbury area, uh, the following week of the 13th, uh, December 13th, uh, up there in Sudbury. I looked up the name of the theater in Sudbury. It's called Sudbury Indie Cinema. Okay. The Indie Cinema in Sudbury. So, uh, definitely check that out and uh, hopefully if this gets uh, hopefully it gets good response in these two cities and that uh, that will allow the film to go national for a big national theatrical release because as i said i enjoyed it and i think uh, anyone who listens to this podcast enjoys historical content will enjoy the film as well so definitely check it out if you're in the gta or in sudbury and my thanks to richard bell for taking the time thanks so much Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our talk. If you have any questions or comments for the show, you can find us at HistorySlam at gmail.com. I am at Dr. Shawnee Fever on Twitter. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your show. Give us the likes, ratings, all that fun stuff to keep the show going. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. But until then... If you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.